Hey, this is Pastor Bill, and I wanted to let you know we had a little bit of a gaffe with the beginning of the recording, and so I'm actually going to be re-recording just the introduction portion of the sermon. And so I'm going to do that now, and then we're going to transition to the live recording, which was just a few minutes into the beginning of the service. So this this sermon, we're beginning a new series on prayer, and when you think about prayer, I have to be honest that I have a bit of a tumultuous, a difficult relationship with prayer. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that many of you do as well. I think that there's probably a lot more Christians who struggle with prayer. They just don't necessarily want to admit it. And so when we talk about prayer, we have a lot of questions, we have a lot of doubts, we have a lot of concerns. And it is true and simple enough if someone says, well, what is prayer? And we say, well, prayer is how we talk to God. That's true. But what we don't often talk about is how the reality of life has a way of making us jaded and calloused towards God, and especially towards prayer. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is we have all kinds of wrestling that we really go through, like why does God answer some prayers and not others? Why bother to pray at all if God is just going to do what he wants to do? I mean, he says that every one of our days was written in his book before we lived even one of them. And so if that's true, well, what is prayer even about? Is prayer about getting what I want? Is prayer about... I mean, I, I don't know. What do, what do our prayers do? How do we learn to trust God when we've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and he says, no, 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 and now I feel wounded by God and I have to go and ask God for something else? How do I learn to trust God when deep down he's the one that I blame for what happened because he didn't answer my prayer and he let whatever happened to me or to you happen? And so how do I recover from that and trust him? all kinds of things that we wrestle with. Does God answer bad prayers? Does God answer flippant prayers, off-the-cuff requests? Now, what I want you to realize is if you have ever thought about any of these things, you're not alone. Matter of fact, you're in great company because throughout the scriptures, from Abraham through Moses, through the Psalms, into the New Testament, we see time and time again the great difficulties that God's people have had with prayer and how they wrestle through it. And so I'm going to read this morning's passage beginning to end, which is just a few verses, and then I'm going to transition us to the original recording. This is Matthew 11, 2-6. Now when John the Baptist, the baptizer, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one? Who is to come, or shall we look for another? And John answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So let's transition now to the original recording from Sunday. They came and visited him, and he sent them to Jesus. And he said to him, him being Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? That was his question. Now, we read the Bible with Sunday school glasses, right? And so we read it, and we read it like this. Oh, Lord, are you the one who is to come? But you need to hear what's going on in John's heart. John's in prison, and he's like, Yo, I thought you were the Savior. I'm in prison. So are you the one who's coming, or did I get it all wrong, waste my life, and eat a bunch of locusts in the wilderness for no good reason? 
because either I'm crazy or I was supposed to wait for you. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, not leopards, lepers. And the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now here's John, cousin of Jesus, forerunner of the kingdom, making a straight path for the Lord. And John, who Jesus said of John, there's never been one greater born of a woman in all the earth. He says that if you're born in the kingdom, then you're greater than him. But there's never been one born of a woman who's greater than John. And here's John, filled with doubts. Jesus is out there performing miracles. John is in prison. John lived a life of self-denial. He ate locusts and honey. He wore camel clothes, camel robes for clothes. He did all of the right things, denying himself the simple pleasures of life like a roof. And he's in prison. Meanwhile, Jesus is hanging out with drunkards and prostitutes to the point where people are accusing him of being a drunk himself. And John wonders, did I get it wrong? Is he not the one? And if he's the Savior, why am I here? And it's not a leap to realize John is struggling. And he's hurt. As you would be as well, as maybe you are today. He needs a comforting word from Jesus. So he sends his friends. He says, go talk to Jesus. Bring me back what he says. And this is what Jesus says. He says, John, the blind receive what they've been waiting for. The lame, they're receiving what they've been waiting for, John. The lepers, they, they finally are getting what they're waiting for. And the deaf do as well. Even the dead are raised. They too receive what they hoped for. Their loved ones received them back. But as for you, John, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Jesus gives John a rebuke. John, you're a key part of the plan, but it's not your plan. That's basically what Jesus says. It's not going to unfold the way you want. I know if you wrote this story, it would look very different, John. But let me tell you something. Don't be offended by the plan that my father is unfolding. And guess what? John is beheaded. He's beheaded in prison, never seeing Jesus come to his full revelation as the suffering servant who would be raised. Doesn't seem fair, does it? You could even go as far as saying it doesn't seem right. What about all of John's prayers? I mean, if Jesus won't answer John's prayers, what the heck do I have going for me? Listen, the scriptures aren't always easy. They are not shallow, although churchianity likes to make them shallow. They're real and they're raw. God isn't a genie. He isn't a formula. And here is the nasty and hard reality of the day. My wounds and your wounds, they are not unique. Don't you think that there were children who carried their sick 
or parents who carried their sick child through the night to be healed by Jesus because they knew he was in such and such town, and then as soon as they arrived, they find out he left two hours earlier? Of course. Jesus only healed one man at the pool while stepping over all the others. The scriptures are littered with wounds and doubts. But as you receive those wounds and doubts, they they will shape you. But in that moment, you hit a crossroads, and if you submit those wounds and doubts to Christ, he will use them to mold you to be more like his son, and he will pour out his love and affection and his grace on you, and he will let you scream at him and pound on his chest while he hugs you and holds you close. Or you can take those wounds and doubts and you can turn your back on him and you can swallow the poison and wait for yourself to die. Tumultuous relationship with prayer. So what's my story? Some of you have heard this. I would say because of the pandemic and the fact that we have different people, the vast majority of you have not. So I went to, I was not raised a believer. I became a believer my freshman year of college, okay? And I went to high school, and my high school was rough for me. I really struggled with high school, really struggled with depression, with uh, just all kinds of escapism, not wanting to live in the real world, wanting to live somewhere else. Um, And I had one best friend from high school. His name was Scott. Scott was my best friend from high school. We did everything together. From the moment that we met each other, sophomore year, he transferred in from a Catholic school, and we were best friends. We played in concert band together. We played video games together. We were geeking out on Magic the Gathering together. You know, we were basically those kids from Stranger Things, okay? I mean, that was us. That was who we were through and through. And we decided that we both got into the College of New Jersey, and we decided we were going to go to the College of New Jersey together. We were in a room together, and it was going to be great. We were both considering majoring in physics. Um, Scott stayed with physics. I changed my major to English Lit because they're really closely related, okay? And so it was just like right there. I mean, let's be honest. And so I changed my major to English Lit. Scott went in as a physics major, and then, halfway through the freshman, my freshman year, I surrendered my life to Jesus. And my life started to change, and Scott all of a sudden started hearing about this faith that I had. And I started sharing with Scott all the time. Now, Scott was an agnostic. His dad worked at Princeton University in the physics lab, not as a professor, but as a tech. You know, his mom was a nurse The whole family had been former Catholics who hated Catholicism, and now they were basically agnostics. And so I prayed, and I witnessed, and I prayed, and I witnessed, and I prayed, and I witnessed throughout that second half of the year, throughout the summer. And, you know, during those times, Scott was hesitantly curious. He would come to a large group at our Christian fellowship, and he would leave like five minutes before the end so he didn't have to talk to anybody, that kind of stuff. Come in late, leave early. He was curious. He was, he was a skeptic by nature, but he was also seeking, and he wasn't afraid of wrestling with things that he didn't know if they were true or not. He wasn't one of those guys who got his back up. Well, the, our sophomore year, we're rooming together, and it was, I guess, October, November, 
And um, I think it was beginning of November, and we, there was a Phil Kagey concert. Some of you guys know who Phil Kagey is. He's a guitar player. Um, and Phil Kagey was doing this concert at Calvary Chapel in North Philly. And so we went to this thing, and Scott played guitar. He loved the guitar. He was a great guitar player. And uh, he was doing, Phil Kagey's doing his thing, and he gives a testimony, and Calvary Chapel presents the gospel. And then they say, everybody close your eyes and bow your heads. And then with every eye closed, every head bowed, they say, if you want to follow Jesus, raise your hand. And of course, I'm like this. And I see Scott put his hand up and put it down real fast. Put it up, put it down. And they said, if you raised your hand, would you come forward? Well, Scott was about as shy and introverted as they come. And there was no, I don't care if Scott's pants were on fire and there was water at the front. And they said, all you got to do is jump in that baptismal. He would not, he, I'll burn to death. It's fine. That's fine. I'll just go, you know. And so he didn't go forward, but I knew he raised his hand. And so for the following weeks, every night I would lay in bed and I'd pray and I'd say, Lord, pray that tomorrow Scott would tell me that he raised his hand. Because I, I didn't want him to know that I was, you know, I didn't want him to know I was also a liar. I was a new Christian, also a liar. I didn't want him to know that I was a liar, right? And so, um, and so I just kept asking, Lord, please have Scott tell me, have Scott tell me, have Scott tell me. This went on for weeks, and it consumed me. It consumed me to the point where it's all I thought about. And I was talking to this one kid who, honestly, I didn't even like. He was in our, our Christian fellowship I shouldn't say I didn't like him. He was fine. Gina gave me this look like. <laughs> he just rubbed me the wrong way. And I'm talking to him. And he's like, it sounds like Scott is an idol in your life. And I'm thinking, my fist's going to be an idol in your life in a second. And he says, I feel like Scott's an idol in your life. And he said, and you know, like God doesn't want you to have any idols. And that just gnawed at me for like two days. And then Saturday night, I'm laying in bed. We had, you know, you have the college bunk beds. And I'm laying in bed, and I just said to God in my head, I said, Lord, all right, fine. Like, if Scott is an idol, then either he's got to, he's either got to, like, tell me, or I got to let this go. And I don't know how to let it go. And if it means that we aren't friends, and he's never going to come to faith, then you got to take this friendship out of my life. Because I don't know if I can handle it. So the next Day was Sunday. I went to church with Gina and Nicole, who we all went to TCNJ together. And, and I came back from church. Gina lived across the hallway, and we invited Scott to grab some food with us. And he said, you know, I have a headache. I'm going to stay back. So we went, got lunch. We came back, and I said, hey, man, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And he said, my head really hurts, really hurts, really bad. He said, I think I'm going to throw up. And he got about halfway to the bathroom, and he collapsed. And so I picked him up, and I dragged him over to the toilet, put him over the toilet so he could throw up. And he looked up at me. And I could see in his eyes he was starting to black out. And he said, Bill, I think I'm dying. And in my, so you guys don't, Gina knew me, Nicole knew me, my parents knew me Twenty years ago, in my overwhelming compassion, I said, well, you better know where you're going. And he passed out, and I ran to get help. And they called 911, and in the ambulance, Scott flatlined. And they resuscitated him. They resuscitated him. They got him stable enough to do surgery. 
He had a severe brain aneurysm, a severe brain aneurysm, and they didn't know if they were going to be able to repair it. And they finally got him stable enough to do the surgery, and they didn't know what was going to happen, but they were successful. But once they were successful, they didn't know what the result would be. They didn't know if he was going to be a vegetable. They didn't know if he was going to lose all motor um, skills in his, in his fingers. And we knew how much Scott was loved guitar. It was the, like the only thing he did was play guitar. Nobody knew it was going to happen. And so they did the surgery, and he isn't waking up yet from his coma. He's in a coma. And we just prayed like crazy. We gathered the the people of our InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, we gathered them every night in Decker Hall. We prayed every night at 10 p.m. for a half hour, for an hour for Scott. We prayed every day. We prayed every day. And then one time we're, we're there and we're, we're, we're praying, and I go back to my room because I didn't have a, phone, a cell phone at the time. That's how long ago this was. And I have an email from, from Scott's brother, and he says to me, he says, Scott just woke up. He just woke up. And I, said, I wrote him back. I said, we were literally praying when Scott woke up. That Scott woke up as we were praying. And I went and I told everybody in our Christian fellowship on Instant Messenger, because that's what you used back then, right? And everybody was rejoicing that God had answered this prayer. And now we just started praying about his motor skills and making sure that he was going to be, you know, in the clear, and the next day, Scott came down with bacterial meningitis. He was dead within four hours. And that was it. And the next few months were real intense. Gina and I had been dating for two weeks when Scott died. Two weeks. You want to talk about something that puts your relationship in, you know, fifth gear? Two weeks. And the truth is that the whole campus was hurting. My friends, his friends, his family, my family, the physics department. And there I was with a room. Now, I didn't have another roommate now. They decided not to give me another roommate. So now I just have this room to myself. And all week long, for months, people would just stop by my room to cry from his physics class, from whatever it might be. Everybody was hurting. And to be honest, I felt like a zombie, like I was just going through the motions of life. And then it hit me. Then it hit me one day. Scott was dead because of me. Bear with me. I prayed that God would take him out of my life. And the next day, he had an aneurysm. Now, I'm not saying this is true, because it's not true. Now, I know that God doesn't answer flippant prayers. He's not a cruel God. I'm saying at the time, that was where I went. I killed Scott. I prayed that God would take him out of my life. Less than 12 hours later, he has a brain aneurysm. Now, if you've been a believer for less than a year, you tell me if you wouldn't have made the same conclusion. 
And so I found myself not walking away from the faith. I actually found myself the opposite. I found myself slipping into a mentality that God's goal is my growth to make me like Christ. And that's true. And that God will do whatever is necessary to get me there, even if it's cruelty, pain, and suffering. That was the conclusion that I came to in my heart. And we realize this, that Scott's death began to rewrite my theology, shaping it around an experience that I lacked the biblical knowledge to comprehend. I had no one to walk beside me. And frankly, I don't think I wanted anyone to walk beside me. My family wanted to grieve with me by hanging out and talking, and I wanted to grieve by just isolating myself. No pastor reached out to me. No disciple maker consistently engaged beyond, hey, how you doing? I had a sympathetic girlfriend who was trying to figure out how she could best walk alongside me. But something else happened. Um, That was sophomore year, junior year, senior year, still doing ministry, still, um, you know, I was InterVarsity president my last two years. We had a chapter of 110 people, I think, our junior year. We got married right after college, started going to seminary, and it was when I was in my first year of seminary, all of a sudden I realized something. I couldn't remember the last time that I prayed. I no longer prayed. Now, yeah, I would pray like a prayer meeting or before a Bible study, but I could not remember myself praying because I no longer had a prayer relationship with God at all. I had become entirely fatalistic. In other words, my thought process was if God is going to do whatever he wants to do, And if his goal is my sanctification, if my prayers don't change anything, what's the point of praying at all? And so I simply stopped. And in a strange way, this made me grow in my trust because anything that happened, I received it like it's supposed to be, no matter how terrible. But at the same time, I mean, throughout all that, I knew Jesus was my greatest portion. I knew he was my only hope. I knew that the only thing I had was the gospel, but I had no comprehension of the goodness of God. It was just like God might as well be a new dictator who took over the nation. And I got to do what I'm supposed to do, and he's going to do what he's going to do. It is what it is. And so what happened is I was becoming exceptionally religious. I was doing the right things. I was saying the right things. I was dutiful. I was disciplined. I could tell you the right answer theologically, but I had no affection in my heart for Christ. Well, after God brought these realities to my attention, as I'm beginning to go through seminary, God brings these realities to my attention, and I began this massive journey to rediscover God and determine who he was, not on the basis of my experiences, not on the basis of my feelings, 
not on the basis of my thoughts, not on the basis of whatever textbook someone in seminary shoved in front of my face, but on the basis of the word of God because I realized it was all I had. And in those early days when we were in seminary, it's like 2004 to 2009, something like that, in those early days, I remember that often the only thing I could do was listen to music. It was like I didn't have the, I didn't know how to pray. And all I could do, I remember driving home, I commuted 120 miles to seminary one way, all the way up to Langhorne from Cape May. I had a friend who lived in Ewing near our old church that we used to go to, and I would crash on his couch while I was at school, and then I'd come home. And I remember many, many, many times driving home and listening to one song on repeat for two hours because it was like the only thing I had the emotional energy to do. And slowly, I kept asking God to please rebuild my intimacy with him. But man, it was hard. Scott died December 10th, 2001. And it destroyed my prayer life. As the death of dreams and loved ones can often do. And this is the crazy thing, guys. This was the first of many life-altering, gut-wrenching scenarios. And every time something happened, the enemy grabbed the shovel marched to the graveyard, and started exhuming that wound so he could point it out and say, told you. When we left the mission field, we were branded, literally, branded traitors because they said only traitors leave the mission field premature. I interviewed at a local church to be their pastor, and before the tribunal that was interviewing me, one of the deacons stood up and he said, if you quit there, why would we think you would gut it out here? You're a quitter. And that continued every time these things would happen. Being wounded by friends, by church members, as a young pastor. I mean, we were 30 years old. I was 30 years old, 31 years old when we planted Revolve. Think about that. But every wound was like a test. God, I gave you Scott. God, I gave you Spain. God, I gave you, I gave you, I gave you. And every time something got crushed in those moments, I would have to decide, does God want what's good for me? Or is everything I think about him false? Is God actually for me? Like Romans says, for you, God is for you in all things. Is that true? And what Scott's death taught me is that in those moments of hardship and the months that follow, because I'll be honest, I mean, Scott died in December. I don't think I even started processing it until the summer. 
in those moments, I use that as a very general term, in the moments that follow hardship, you hit this crossroads and you have to decide how you're going to respond. And it's not a one-time thing. It's a moment by moment by moment by moment by moment thing. And yet it happens less and less as time goes on. But the reality is life chews you up and spits you out. And it wants to make you in its image. And Jesus wants to make you in his. And so when I tell you that I understand your tumultuous relationship with prayer, I know what you're talking about. And I know how you feel. And I know what you're processing through. But I'm here to warn you. What you're promised in this life is trial, tribulation, and persecution, and this world will beat you up. It will spit you out, and if you are not careful, the trials and temptations of life will plunder your joy, ruin your intimacy with God, and keep on covering your heart in layers and layers and layers of callous until you become an arrogant, do-gooding, religious person who nobody wants to be around because that's what religion does. And so I want to summarize my, what I've learned quickly as three enemies of intimacy with God. Three enemies. Enemy number one, not dealing with your wounds and acknowledging that God allowed them to happen. Not dealing with your wounds. You can't sweep stuff under the rug forever. You have to deal with with your stuff. You experienced hardship. You were the victim of crime. You committed crime against someone else. You got to deal with your wounds because if you don't, your heart grows calloused. And eventually nothing wants to penetrate. Nothing can penetrate. You harden your heart. You harden your heart. You harden your heart. But consider the cross. Consider the cross. The wounds of our Savior were allowed by God, yes, but they were given because of sinful man. The wounds you feel are real wounds, but God is for you in all things, and he demonstrated that on the cross of Christ. Second warning is fatalism from not seeing God give you what you want. Fatalism from not seeing God give you what you want. You know, when you become a fatalist, you stop caring and you just turn God into some kind of calculated machine because your heart is cold. You have to take his heart out of his chest and make him cold as well. And so you just turn him into your own image is what you're doing. You're saying, this is how I feel. That must be how he feels as well. My of a frozen heart, he probably does too. And so when you're a fatalist, you see everything in formulas and law and rule, and you take all of the relationship out of God and you make it entirely about all of the churchianity stuff. But consider the cross. Jesus is not fatalistic in his firm grasp that he has to die. But instead, he surrenders to it. And then for the joy that is before him, he marches forward. Jesus' surrender in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, not my will, your will be done. He's not being a fatalist. 
with all of his heart, he's saying, I don't want this, but I love you and I trust you and I'm entrusting myself to you. And the third enemy of intimacy with God is that prayerlessness from stuffing these things down rather than dealing with them will destroy you. I believe if you give yourself fully to a calloused heart and if you give yourself over to fatalism and you add those two things together, you'll wind up in the same place as me. And you'll just give up on prayer altogether. And you'll turn Jesus into a book that you read instead of a Savior who loves your heart. You give in to the despondent place of prayerlessness, having abandoned your hope that God is good. Powerful, yeah, you, you'll acknowledge that. But powerful and good? Because in pain, that's what we doubt. How could God be good and in control and let this happen? But we embrace both realities and consider the cross. The pain and suffering doesn't drive Jesus away from prayer, but to it. Even his final breath, a breath prayer of, repent, of surrender. Into your hands, I entrust my spirit. Quoting, really looking back to Psalm 24, or Psalm 22, which is all throughout the crucifixion scene, the psalmist entrusting himself to God. So guys, what's the solution? What's the solution? Draw near to God. That's the only solution. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But you know what the hardest part is? How do you draw near to God when he's the one you blame? You just have to draw near. And you have to be honest, and you have to be real, and you have to be raw. And you're probably going to throw some temper tantrums in the process. And you have to ask to be changed. And you have to learn to listen, and you have to learn to hear. And it's going to take a long time. Scott died more than 20 years ago. And Gina and Nicole, who knew me before, and my mom and my dad, who knew me before, will tell you there's parts of me that broke that were never the same. That I used to be always the obnoxious class clown. I used to be more affectionate. Those things started to break in me and needed to be rebuilt over time. Draw near. Realize that Jesus was separated from his father so that you could be brought near. That the gospel is about you being able to draw near, which is why the author of Hebrews says, let us now draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. At the end of those wounds, the job is to draw near. Though you may be the cause, 
Though you may be the victim, though you may be collateral damage, you draw near. Because prayer is ultimately not about rubbing the lamp so you can get what you want. Prayer is ultimately about intimacy with God. And the enemy will try every tactic, as predictable as they may be, he will try every tactic to attack that intimacy with God. He will wound your heart. He will twist those wounds into unbelief. And he will make you think that your prayers don't matter and the word isn't helpful. And he will always, always, always strive to seek, to kill, and lie, and destroy And if you let them, your intimacy will slip into familiarity. And over time, you will become with God just like an old roommate. And eventually, you may just tolerate him, even resent him. But you were made for intimacy, to walk in the garden. And that's what prayerlessness misses more than anything else. So this is like the opening sermon to a series about prayer. Prayer and intimacy with God. And my plan is to dial back and look at little vignettes from Jesus' life. The character of Christ and how it relates to what he taught on prayer. That we would look at these rich truths about prayer and about intimacy and the good the good life-giving bomb of Gilead, the gospel that only the gospel can heal our wounds, and to look at these things. And I'm going to do my best to answer the tough questions. And if you have tough questions, tell me, text me, email me, write me an anonymous note in the offering box, because the point is to address these things. But I want you to imagine the life of joy that you could have if you learn to actually deal with your wounds instead of walking around as, a, as a, a shadow of yourself. Imagine if fatalism could be replaced by hope, if despondence could be replaced with joy, and if an unhealthy understanding of who God is could be replaced with one that is beautiful and accurate. This is what awaits God's people if we would only work through our wounds with him because he's wounded too. He's the wounded shepherd. He's the wounded God. And if anybody understands the wounds that you've experienced on the spectrum of wounds, it's him. He can handle it. So we draw near Because he wants us to learn to pray and pursue intimacy despite our tumultuous pasts. And so we say, Lord, teach us to pray. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray for your people. Lord, these are your sheep. I'm just an under-shepherd. And you're the chief shepherd. You know what your sheep need. Lord, you know the wounds represented in this room. I don't. I pray that you would show yourself to be the present good shepherd who leads his people to pasture. 
Lord, teach us to worship you with our wounds because you're wounded too. And Lord, teach us to pray. Individually as families, as husbands and wives, and as a church. And we ask these things in the name of Christ, our only hope. Amen.